great to see your faces. I'm seeing faces that I haven't seen in many, many months as more people are being vaccinated and coming. If you're joining us online, welcome. Today we're finishing a sermon series called Honest Evangelism. As followers of Christ, we're called to share our faith, uh, both as a church corporately, but as individuals. Let me ask you a question. It, it may be a little uncomfortable. When was the last time you shared your faith with somebody if you're a follower of Christ? I know we have seekers and agnostics in our midst too, but if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you've committed your life to him, when was the last time you formally or informally shared your faith? That, that's a rhetorical question. We don't need to do confession or raise hands, but I assume that many of us, when we hear that question, we instantly feel a sense of conviction, guilt, and the stats would uh, bear that out. In 1993, 89% of Christians who had shared their faith in their life at some point agreed that this is a responsibility for every Christian. We all should be sharing our faith. That's 89%. Today, in 2021, according to the Barna Group, just 64% say that it's a responsibility. That's a 25-point drop. Where is that coming from, I wonder? Perhaps the, the cultural um, belief that we're not supposed to impose our worldview on somebody else, kind of moral relativism. There's probably a lot of different reasons. Maybe people don't feel equipped or trained to do so. This has been a series, and we'll finish it up today, that has given us pause to think critically about how do we do this? Since it is our responsibility, how do we do it in a, a way that honors God and honors other people? Uh, we have spent um, all our time in Acts 17, and we'll return there today, uh, a short review, but why don't you turn to Acts 17, I'll be reading out of the NIV, uh, we pick up the story again, uh, returning to this place where Paul is in Athens. Chapter 17, verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives every one life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the entire earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. 
As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. This is God's word. Just by way of review, we said in week one on this scripture that if we don't learn to see how Paul sees and feel how Paul feels, we're not going to be very effective in sharing the good news about Jesus Christ. What do we mean by that? Well, Paul had trained his mind to notice the landscape of idols. He understood that the natural sin-fractured status of the human heart is to worship little gods, to make good things and turn them into God things, ultimate things. We do that, followers of Christ do that at times, and those who we would share Christ with are trapped in kind of this cyclical pattern of worshiping various idols. And of course, they had literal shrines to gods like Poseidon and Artemis. And we are tempted to say, you know, we don't do that anymore. Sure we do. We worship all sorts of idols in our culture, and we need to learn the operating idols in the lives of people we're witnessing, sharing with. But we also need to feel how Paul felt. It said he was greatly disturbed when he saw a world full of idols. And we noted a Greek study on week one that that greatly disturbed word in the original language means that he was so moved with both indignation at the idolatry, like it's not right that human beings who are designed to worship the one true created God have fallen into this cycle of worshiping a counterfeit and they're suffering. It's not right that indignation will give you the courage to have those conversations. But if you just have indignation, you're going to be very judgmental. You're going to be harsh and critical. You won't be well-received. You also have to have that compassion. Not only am I upset at the idolatry that causes so much suffering, I'm moved with gentle compassion for those caught in the cycle of idolatry. And so I have the ability to be winsome and humble and kind Have you learned how to see what Paul sees, the idols? To feel how Paul feels? Last week, Pastor Chad spent more time on this, and he asked a question that's probably at the heart of this series. What is that question? Are we moved with concern for the lost? Does that concern compel us to act, to actually have the conversation? It's an uncomfortable conversation, and I'll be the first to admit there have been times where I have said I'm moved with concern but that hasn't translated into action to actually have the conversation. I didn't want to come across like a religious weirdo, a fanatic pushing an agenda. I didn't want to be rejected. I didn't want to feel unpopular. Various reasons got in the way. Does anyone else relate to that? Pastor Chad rightly pointed out that what Paul did here is he found common ground with this altar to an unknown God. He said, we have, we have that common experience and You have this altar. Let me tell you about this known God. And so he compelled us to think about your life 
and the common ground that you might have with others. He interviewed Jimmy, and Jimmy is the dog father. That's the nickname he's given at the dog park because he goes to the dog park all the time, and he's reliable, and he takes care of the dog park, and he knows everybody at the dog park, and he uses the dog park to share Jesus with others and invite people to a community of believers like Mercy Road. And we were asking the question, what's your dog park? Where is your common ground? Is it a hobby? Is it a background experience you've had where you can relate to others who have had that experience? And why not share the most important part of your life with the people in your metaphorical dog park? Today, just two points I'd like us to consider. First, we have good news for religious and irreligious people alike. The gospel applies to religious people and irreligious people. That's the first point. And second, most people sense the presence of a bigger and nearer God in their life. We'll talk about those in turn. First, we have good news, the good news about Jesus for religious people and irreligious people. Chapter 17, verse 18 talks about Paul engaging with two types of people, the Stoics and the Epicureans. Stoics and Epicureans. Now that sounds dated and ancient, but let me assure you, my friends, you work with, you play with, you go to school with, you rub elbows with all day long, Stoics and Epicureans. They're very real. Some of you are Stoics or Epicureans. What, what, what do I mean? Well, the Stoics are the equivalent of religious people in the ancient world. It's a group of philosophy a school of philosophy that says, never let them see you sweat. Stiff upper lip. I go to funerals, but I don't cry. Stoics are people who value high control in their life. They're diligent people. They live by their code of conduct. They expect others to as well. They're distrustful of many emotions. They're very uh, stiff. They have resolve, dependable, And then they find themselves debating the Epicureans. Epicureans are the irreligious people. They don't care about all those pantheons of gods like the Stoics. The Stoics are always trying to dot the I's, cross the T's spiritually. We better, if we're going on a voyage over water, uh, give a quick offering to Poseidon. We've got to be responsible, do all this stuff. The Epicureans are saying, life is a party, man. It's fleeting. These gods, they're probably made up anyways. And if they are real, sure, appease them, but only appease them so that we can have a good time. They're chasing pleasure and happiness. They would love and relate to the modern-day phrase, you do you. You do you. It's all about autonomy. Leave me alone and let me experience all that life has to offer. I want good food. I want good entertainment. Don't put any limits on sexual experience or any rules around all that stuff because life isn't about rules and it's not about duty and being driven or avoiding emotions. It's just about experiencing all the best because when you die, that's it. These are the two groups in the ancient world that Paul is reasoning with at the same time. And what do they say to him? What is this babbler trying to say? Now, the Greek word for that babbler, it's seed spitter, is the literal translation. It was an ancient... Um, slur, like, a, like a, a diss that you would call someone who has like cherry-picked a bunch of different wisdom and just kind of built their own amateurish philosophy together. 
They're just stringing a bunch of stuff together. And he's saying, this seed spitter, what does he do? He's not educated. He's not enlightened. He's not arguing for stoic principles or even Epicurean principles. He's talking about this resurrection thing. One, one of the translations I came across didn't even say babbler. It said, what is this moron saying? <laughs> and maybe that is another part of the reason there's a person in your life who doesn't know Jesus. You've been prompted to talk, but you don't want to be considered a seed spitter, a moron, somebody who is misunderstood. And guess what? When we share our faith, there will be a percentage of people who think we're moronic, who think we're amateurish, who think that our take on reality, our belief that God became a human being, lived the life we couldn't live, died the death that sin deserves, and rose to life and thereby offers us eternal life, they just think that sounds ridiculous. And so count the cost, my friend, before sharing your faith. You might be called a seed spitter, but does that deter Paul? No, because he knows the gospel transforms both Stoics and Epicureans. It's like Paul, if he was right here, would say, do you have a Stoic friend in your life who doesn't know Jesus? Why don't you make the appeal to them that they'll never be able to appease all the little gods in their life. They'll never be able to live up to the standard, the code that they set for themselves. And when they fail to live up to that code of conduct and virtue, it will crush them because their identity is based on them. And if they do a good job at it, they'll be inflamed with pride. And if they don't do a good job at living up to their code, they'll be crushed and devastated. And do you have an Epicurean friend in your life who doesn't know Christ? Why don't you make the appeal to them that the next vacation, the next sexual experience, the next toy, the next uh, promotion at work, the next distinction and award, none of that will fill the ever-increasing void in your heart. And you know that's true. Friends, I would invite you to do a little thought experiment right now. The Bible says that if you have asked Christ into your life, the Holy Spirit literally lives inside of you, like Wi-Fi, connected all bars. And you can ask the Spirit to bring things to mind. We live in a distracted age, and it's sometimes hard to, to focus, but now focus on this. Is there an Epicurean in your life, a pleasure-seeking, you-do-you type of person that doesn't know Christ, that deep down probably senses at some level life is more than a party? Does a name come to mind? Does a face come to mind? And, and now switch that. Why not ask the Holy Spirit to bring before you somebody in your life, maybe a family member, maybe a friend, a stoic, someone who lives by a harsh, virtuous code of conduct, who's the person who doesn't cry at the funeral, keep a stiff upper lip, pulls your, pull your weight and I'll pull my weight. And they're just trying to use religion or virtue to make themselves feel like they're worth something, but they deep down feel empty. There's this stirring part in the scripture that says, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole world. He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from anyone. What if the people that just came to mind, out of all the billions of people that have existed and will exist, were custom-selected to bump into you? 
Isn't that a, doesn't that kind of send a chill up your spine? And just because that really hurts our head, just like it hurts our head when we think of eternity, what do you mean it never ends? It, what if it doesn't hurt God's head? What if he's able to be that strategic? We have good news, and this good news is both for religious and irreligious people, moralistic people and moral relativistic people. Secondly, friends, most people sense the presence of a bigger and nearer God in their life. This has been my personal experience. I wonder if it is yours. Now, sure, there are people who have hardened their heart over time, and they are very convinced that there is no God that loves them, that when they die, they will just go in a box, and they will never exist, and nothing they've ever said or done will be remembered, and eventually the sun will burn out, and it's just over. Those people are quite few and far between, and honestly, some of those people deep down, have admitted to me that deep down they do at least occasionally get a sense that there is a bigger God, that the world isn't just about all these little lowercase g gods, that logically there must be a God. It's interesting, I read something recently about academics coming to faith. That's not something that happens a lot in our current age. What school of study at the graduate level do you think leads conversions towards Christianity in the last five to ten years. Physicists, advanced physicists are coming to Christ more than anybody else. Why do you think that would be? Yeah, it's a theory, and when you step back and you're forced to come up with a governing theory for why we're on a huge circular rock right now that's both spinning and racing through space at an unfathomable speed and all the things are rightly conditioned for us to have an experience where we learn things and have to make decisions about how we treat one another. And when you look back at the macro picture, you start to get in touch with this inner sense that you've had all your life that any God that I could make in my image is no God at all. So there must be a God that has made me in his image, at least the best parts of me. And that God must be a lot bigger than any of the gods I've tried out. I wonder today if there isn't a skeptic Epicurean listening right now, maybe online, maybe in person, who's just said, you know, I have tried to fill the longing with everything imaginable. I have given myself license to do whatever I want to do, be whatever I want to be, and if I'm honest, having made a God out of happiness, I've missed happy, and I've missed it severely. And I wonder if that sense deep down that God is both bigger and nearer, I wonder if there's not some truth in that. It's amazing that Paul is essentially revealing to the Athenians that First of all, at the very same time, you're thinking way too small about God. If you can make him in your workshop, it's probably not a God worth following. And then at the same time, you're also not understanding how near he is to you. And maybe that's why you're trying to make him with your hands. He's bigger than you ever imagined, and he's closer than you ever dared hope. Isn't that just make you want to share that type of news with somebody? 
I'd like to finish today just with some practical application, finish this series. So in the brief time we have less, I'm, I'm just going to share some just tips. Because a lot of times it's the practical stuff that keeps us from sharing our faith, isn't it? First of all, we've got the director of Fishing for Life here, and I know, I know he'll appreciate that. Fish where the fish are biting. That's the first principle. Fish where the fish are biting. I have a friend, and we were talking about this sermon, and I was saying, why do you think it's the case that such few people share their faith, even though most of us would admit that's our responsibility as Christ followers? He said, well, let me tell you about the last two years up at my cabin. This, my friend has a cabin up in the Brainerd area on a real pristine lake that's connected to seven other lakes, just lots of places to fish, and he's a good fisherman. And he said, two years ago, our outboard little motor broke down. And my brother and I both looked at it. We couldn't figure it out. And we just, life got busy, and we just never took it into the shop. And we have this tiny little paddle boat. It's almost made for kids, right? And so guess what I've been doing for the last two years? Fishing 50 yards off the dock on this little paddle boat. And I catch sunnies or whatever, but it's not good fishing. But I know that as someone who says I like to fish, if I want to catch those big northerns and more walleye than I care to eat, I know where they are. I would just have to fix the motor and just spend a day taking care of that so I could get in my boat and then just, I mean, it's, it would cost me something. I don't know how much that costs financially. And then you got to burn the gas to get there. And I thought that was such an interesting picture. He said, maybe that's where a lot of Christians are today. We know we're called to be fishers of human beings and share the good news about Jesus Christ. But there's some stuff that we would need to do to get to where the fish actually bite not to mix metaphors here, but Jesus had this wonderful parable, the parable of the sower. And he said, in the process of sharing the good news about God's love with people, it's like scattering seed. It was an agriculture metaphor. He was speaking to farmers. He said, you throw a seed out there, and, and there's like four types of soil. One is rocky, and one is stony, and one is hard. All of those are not optimal for growing anything. The seed just shrivels up or birds come and eat it. But there's a fourth soil. It's good soil. And when the seed hits the good soil, that's where things grow and faith flourishes. Maybe the good soil is the exact place where the fish are biting. What is good soil? I've noticed, and I think you've noticed, that any time someone is experiencing an unusual amount of change and tension in their life, that's good soil. Anytime your friend is going through a tough divorce, anytime somebody you know in your family or someone you just know at work experienced a death of a loved one, anytime someone's really up against the wall with a medical condition, ironically, this is good soil. It's good soil for ministry because in those moments, our Epicurean philosophy and our stoic philosophy, it just crumbles under the weight of that pain and that instability. There's a lot of people wondering about the influence that people have in the church, the larger church right now, because it's a chaotic time politically and, you know, COVID-19. I would encourage us to reframe that and look at that in a more optimistic light and say, do you know anybody who's not experiencing great change in tension right now? I don't. And maybe they've been placed in your life for you to humbly share Jesus. That doesn't look like you saying, I've got all the answers. 
You don't have to be an apologetic uh, superstar that answers every hard question, but you could be used by God to say, what, what really is keeping you from believing this? What if you just wrote down your primary objections? And I'd be happy to research that with you, not in an argumentative way, but just think through that with you. Be a conversation partner. Here's another real practical tip. And I really learned this from two family members. My dad employs this a lot, and my wife, actually. And now, my wife is introverted. In general, she doesn't like to talk to strangers about anything uncomfortable. She was in line at Target a few years ago, and this woman behind her was just noticeably upset, crying. And she introduced this incredible way to share the good news about Jesus, or at least open the door. It's just five words. Can I pray for you? She turned around, and my introverted, conflict-avoiding wife said, looks like you're having a tough day. Can I pray for you? Not only was the woman very receptive to that, she was very grateful for that. And it's been my experience when you do the work of getting in the boat and driving to the place where the fish are actually biting and you put the line in the water that is, can I pray for you? Can I help you? That looks really painful. Do you have anybody to walk alongside you in this season? That's where the good soil is. That's where the fish are biting. Friends, Billy Graham once said, prayer is crucial in evangelism. Only God can change the heart of someone who is in rebellion against him. No matter how logical our arguments are or how fervent our appeals, our words will accomplish nothing unless God's spirit prepares the way. And I like to think of it like this. When I'm called to talk to someone about Jesus, whether it's a sermon or it's just a stranger on the street or it's somebody who I have common ground with and they're hurting and it's good soil, I try to just say this, Lord, you have my lips. You made them. I'm only alive another day because of you. I don't remember voting to be born or to be placed in this specific time and age. Apparently you saw fit to put me here. And now this person is in my path. Lord, you have my lips, which means sometimes they need to remain closed. Some of the best evangelism is just short questions and a lot of lips shutting and letting people talk, listening. What would it look like if you did what Paul did? Lord, you have my lips. I'm disturbed by all these idols. I'm moved at people caught in idolatry because I've been caught in idolatry too. And so I'm just going to say, God, use me however you like. The Apostle Paul was called a moron, a babbler, a seed spitter, when he presented the gospel to religious and irreligious people, Epicureans and Stoics. The irony, of course, is that within a few hundred years, this message of the good news about Jesus Christ, the gospel will totally transform Athenian and Roman culture. And we're not here talking about how to appease Poseidon 2,000 years later. We're talking about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Friends, if this series stirs up, has stirred up something for you, you might consider starting with something very simple. Hey, I haven't checked in in a while. I don't know where you're at with a faith background, but this has been a tough year for everybody. 
if you'd ever want to come to Easter service at my church. It's a church that cares for people. I'd, I'd be glad to, to go with you. I was thinking of going at this time. What is the worst that could happen? They say no and walk away thinking, wow, they care about me a little more than I thought. Let's pray as we conclude this series and we prepare our hearts for communion. Gracious God, you have our lips, you have our lives. Forgive us for, as followers of Jesus Christ, not sharing the most important news, good news, that this world has ever had the privilege of, of hearing. Help us to be realistic in our expectations. If there's four types of soil, that means there may be times where only 25% of the people we share Jesus with will respond. And that's okay. Help us to find the good soil, Lord, to notice where people are in pain and transition and change and then have the courage and the kindness to ask questions, to listen, and to share. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.